So, Mark. Yes. I want you to imagine that you're a criminal. Okay. We've spent a lot of time establishing that we don't like that, so it's going to take me a second. Right, we're usually anti-crime, but I need you to imagine that you're a criminal and you've just robbed a bank. Oh, no. Oh, yes, is how you would feel if you were a criminal. It's true. I would be very Again, you've got to get in this headspace. All right. Let's take it some mental gymnastics, but I think I'm there. Okay. You have to pick one person from a past We Love the Love movie to be your getaway driver. Who is it? It's no hurricane heist, but I think the cool, calm nature of Gerard Butler in Geostorm under pressure is the energy you need to escape from a bank. Okay. That or the terrible Secret Service agent who drives the getaway car with the president in it. See, one of my thoughts also went towards, like, crap action because it occurred to me that maybe you would want the mom from Skyscraper for similar reasons. Calm under pressure, really good at managing crisis situations. She can do some emergency medical work. Action movies are definitely, I think, the way to go when you're looking for a getaway driver. Right, like, I thought about Howard the Duck, but his legs are probably too short to reach the pedals. Yeah, I can't imagine he's very good at driving. Especially the Howard the Duck as portrayed in the movie versus the comics. Well, again, remember, the actor in the Howard the Duck suit could not see. God damn it, I always forget that. (laughs) Uh, It's been so long since we've had duck talk. I know, and I've been looking for stuff, but this lull that we're in because of coronavirus, there's not a lot of new news going on. Of course, every day we wake up and we mourn the cancellation of the Howard the Duck animated Hulu series. Which is the least surprising cancellation in the world to me. Except that they, like, the wild thing that I think you have forgotten is that that was going to be one of a set of five animated series. Oh, God. Were all of them canceled or was it just Howard? They were all canceled, but not at the same time. Howard was the last one to get the axe. Weird. I guess Howard the Duck has the cult status of the movie to kind of drive it forward. Right, like the other ones were Hitmonkey and Modoc, and there was one that was going to be Tigra and Dazzler together. And then they were all going to team up. It was going to be kind of like the Netflix setup for the Daredevil universe, but with just really weird animated characters. Yeah, Howard is the only one of those I've heard of, so. Right, because he's the only one whose voice you can hear in Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout in Disney's California Adventure, which is, of course, closed right now. For only the fourth time in history. Yeah. It might be open by the time this episode comes out, but it's probably not. Yeah, doesn't look that way. Uh, Anyway, on that kind of depressing note, should we start the show about a very depressing movie? uh, My other answer was Chewbacca, who would be great as a getaway driver because that is basically what he does in Empire Strikes Back. I had forgotten we covered a Star Wars until you said that. Good episode. Remember when we covered a Star Wars and it wasn't... The Attack of the Clones? I mean, I feel like we still kind of need to do Attack of the Clones. I know. It's just, I don't want to. I rewatched <laughs> the series before Rise of Skywalker came out. And let me tell you, that thing is a slog. Yeah. I watched it on Halloween because I felt like it was appropriately horrifying. Remember when we made it through 10 minutes of Phantom before we turned it off? And then I watched it again last fall as I was like coming down with the worst sickness I've had in years. And I was getting progressively sicker as the movie went on, which was just this doubly horrifying experience. That 
there's times when you should just turn off a movie, and that sounds like one of them. But then I would have to summon the will to turn it back on. Or you don't, and you just move on with your life. The problem with Phantom Menace is there's a real sunk cost fallacy where you get to a point in that movie where you're like, if you hang in there, you'll eventually get Duel of the Fates, which is a good scene. Okay, I don't remember that one. That's the Darth Maul lightsaber uh, fight. Ah, yes, the end. that is a good one. You are correct. But is it worth it? So at some point, Absolutely it's like I've committed not. an hour and a half to this. Absolutely not. Is it worth it? Anyway, welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. See, I think this is a good transition because what we're going to be talking about today is whether you can dig yourself out of the hole that you have found yourself in and whether you should dig yourself out of that hole or whether you should just wallow and enjoy it. This is an investigative podcast about one of the most urgent questions of our day. I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And the question is... Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? I'm so lost. Are these people dateable or likable? As we record, we're starting week three without me really leaving my house. It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what is there. This week, we are taking a look at a romance whose tagline on the poster and on the Blu-ray cover that I have was, quote, They're young, dot, dot, dot. They're in love, dot, dot, dot. And now, in all caps, and they kill people! It's Arthur Penn's 1967 Best Picture nominee, Bonnie and Clyde. This is a movie that dares to ask an incredibly important question. What if hot people were dumb? Because the first half of this movie is just hot people making bad decisions. And then the and second half of a lot the of movie... Fun is hot people making bad decisions and having less fun. Which is, like, kind of the key to the movie. And one of the reasons this movie came in for criticism on some quarters when it came out was people being like, this movie is alternatively too comical and also just, like, too carefree in its violence. This is a movie that really shocked a lot of people when it came out, particularly because of its use of blood, which was not really common in violent movies prior to this. If you watch most movies before this, gunshots don't seem to be that painful or bloody, so it's quite And a people twist. die from gunshots, but they just, like, fall over and that's it. Right. It's a murder-she-wrote situation, so the most you'll get is maybe one trickle of blood out of the gunshot wound to show you just where it was. This was one of the first movies to make really extensive use of squibs, those, like, blood bags that can explode outwards. <laughs> and boy, do they get used. Yeah, and it's kind of great, and it's also used really well where, you know, you talked about how this movie can kind of be divided into halves, where the first half is really fun, and the second half is more, like, capital T, tragic. And the pivot that really happens is when the man hanging onto the car is shot in the face, and you're like, oh, wait, that's not so good. And this is something where this movie really did become a source of great controversy. There's a lot of backlash to it, but also a lot of people who just loved it. Pauline Kael wrote a 7,000-word review of this movie that's fantastic. I'm going to post it on our social media. And that's what convinced The New Yorker to make her their full-time film critic. On the other hand, at The New York Times, Bosley Crowther was so appalled by the violence that he started repeatedly campaigning in The Times to decrease violence in movies, and it went on for so long that eventually The Times fired him because he wouldn't talk about anything else. Ooh. What a shift. Also, I feel like every review I've heard reference from Pauline Kale has been negative, so quite a shock to find out that she liked a movie. She liked lots of movies. She did like lots of movies, but usually 
when you listen to Unspooled, when they're looking for someone that published a negative opinion, she is one of the frequent people that is brought up. Well, sure. One of the other people who criticized this movie were the widow and the son of Frank Hamer, the Texas Ranger who gets kidnapped and they take the photos with him, which is like kind of a fun and, and dangerous scene. Yeah. The real Frank Hamer was a decorated Texas Ranger who was called out of retirement to hunt down Bonnie and Clyde and never encountered them until the day that he killed them. So his family sued the producers for defamation and won an out-of-court settlement. It seems that a lot of people that were alive to see themselves depicted in this movie were not too happy with how they were shown. Yeah, I mean, Blanche Barrow actually originally approved of her portrayal in the screenplay, but really strongly objected to the way that Estelle Parsons played her in the movie. I can understand that. You don't know what Blanche Barrow was like in those moments, but Estelle Parsons while doing a very good job, is definitely someone where if you saw yourself depicted that way, you would probably be a little upset, to say the least. Sure. Yeah. Now, like I said, though, there is this divide between how different people responded. Warner Brothers had very little faith in the movie and was kind of annoyed that they had somehow wound up on the hook for it. They gave it a very small publicity budget and it kind of barely rolled it out initially in the U.S. Based on the tagline, it doesn't seem that they were given the cream of the crop of the publicity department. (laughs) Definitely not. They're young, they're in love, and (laughs) they they kill kill people! people. (laughs) But it was a hit in a lot of the places where it rolled out, and there are some of these critics like Kale who championed it. It then did really well when they opened it in the U.K., which convinced Warners to expand it in the U.S., Yeah, it made a lot of money. Yeah, it made $23 million in 1967, which made it the second biggest Warner Brothers film ever at the time behind My Fair Lady. What a a twist. (laughs) From one to two. Quite a turn there. Well, I mean, here's the thing. In, In My Fair Lady, you've got some people pulling a scam, passing off Eliza Doolittle as a society lady. And then here... You've got people who don't bother to scam at all. They're very honest. They walk in, they say, this is a bank robbery. (laughs) Boy, are they honest. That's really the key. One of my favorite moments in this is when he walks in and says, this is a stick up, clears his throat, and then says it louder. And that's when people react. That's a very funny moment. And that's the thing. This movie is fun. I read the Bosley Crowther review, and he's complaining that it has at times a Keystone Cops element. But I think the fun that they are having is important to this vision of the story because that's what draws Bonnie in. She's like, this life is fun and exciting and sexy. And kind of the key to the movie is the way that the roles of Bonnie and Clyde turn, where in the first half, Clyde is willing to just chill, just hang out. He wants to do the robberies, but he also isn't super hardcore about it. And Bonnie is pushing him to go further, to really live the exciting lifestyle. And in the second half, Bonnie is maybe ready to draw back as she's witnessing the violence of it, but Clyde is committing more and more. Right. The mystique of it all is very intoxicating at first to Bonnie, who I feel when the reality is exposed is starting to pull back. But the reality is kind of what pulls Clyde in even further if that makes sense. Right. He starts thinking about how to evade that reality as much as possible. When Bonnie asks, what would you do if we could walk out of here and not be wanted? He's saying, well, you don't live in the same state where you commit your crimes. That way you throw off the law a bit more. And she was looking for like, oh, you know, I would settle down, get a job and, you know, start a farm or something like that. Right. And that whole aspect of the movie is really well captured in the scene with Gene Wilder in his film debut, where- That's right. They- kidnap these two people on a date and at first they're really scared but then 
the intoxication of the crime and the fun of the people draws out these two characters and they become friends. And at the end, Buck is like, aren't you guys glad you picked us up? And they're like, oh, we have such a good time. But as soon as Gene Wilder says that he's an undertaker, bringing the idea of death back into it, Bonnie fully freezes and forces them out of the car as soon as possible. Right. She wants to avoid thinking about the consequences of their actions. Right. But it doesn't seem to affect anyone else as strongly as it does Bonnie. Now, you had seen this movie before, right? Yes, I had. I saw that it was on Canopy and just watched it. So this was my second Uh, time. Shout out to our favorite streaming service, Canopy. Yes. And was this your first time watching it? It was. I had never seen it before. It is, you know, hot take, a good movie. Yeah, it rules. Another hot take, Faye Dunaway drinking a Coke is one of the sexiest things I've seen in a movie. I mean, most of this movie is just among the sexiest things you've seen in a movie. Yeah. These people are hot. Yes, it is very key aspect of this movie. Also, uh, I had no idea that this is completely non sequitur. I had no idea Warren Beatty and Shirley MacLaine were brother and sister. Until today. Yeah, I also learned that. Yeah. Because early on, Shirley MacLaine was being considered for the role of Bonnie, and she left the project when Beatty, who was producing, also decided to star because they didn't want to play romantic partners, which makes sense. Yeah, I would also have stepped away, probably. So this movie was written by David Newman and Robert Benton. We have actually mentioned their work before. Because they wrote the Superman musical, It's a Bird, dot, 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 it's a plane, dot, 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 it's Superman. What a world. People just have such diverse talents. So they were really into the French New Wave, like a lot of the New Hollywood writers and directors who are coming to the fore in the late 60s. So they wanted to play with some of the complicated ideas, unsettling filmmaking techniques. They tried to get Francois Truffaut to direct this, but he went to make Fahrenheit 451 and recommended instead that they hire Jean-Luc Godard. Godard wanted to make it in New Jersey in the winter, and the producers said, no, this takes place in a warm part of Texas, so we don't want to film it in New Jersey in the winter. Godard got really upset. He said, you're talking about weather and I'm talking about cinema. And he quit. Wait, oh, I don't get that whole thing at all. I guess he had a vision. He had a vision, and I was reading about this too, and that was kind of when Warren Beatty stepped in and was of the idea that they should get an American to direct this film. And I think that is- Right, he heard about the project from Truffaut. Right, and I think that is a good idea, because Bonnie and Clyde's legacy, well- Cemented by this film, the reason that they're as strongly known, I would say, is large part due to this. But that legacy of that era and the feeling and the climate would ring better, I think, to someone raised within the world in the U.S. where this myth lives. Right, and there's something about that American obsession with, like individualism and like doing whatever you need to for yourself that leads to the American fascination with criminals that kind of peaks in the early 20th century. I was thinking about the opening titles of the Michael Mann movie Public Enemies during this that talk about this period in the 20s and 30s as the golden age of American crime. And a big part of that is its placement in time in the Great Depression, where people like Bonnie and Clyde or John Dillinger or Billy the Kid could become these kind of folk heroes, in large part because they were robbing banks and everybody was pissed off at the banks. 
Right. And you see in this the Robin Hood element to it, too, where when Bonnie and Clyde are robbing a bank, Clyde walks up and sees money on a counter and asks a farmer, is this your money or the bank's? And when he says it's his money, Clyde lets him keep it because they're trying to keep the people on their side. Right. There's a scene almost exactly like that with Dillinger in Public Enemies. So the whole myth of the gallant bank robber really rang true at that time and you can kind of see it show up i think in other times in american history with movies like the inside job and the bank heist movie has never gone away completely but it definitely is something i think that probably fluctuates as americans opinions of banks changes but even not a bank think about another movie we talked about could have maybe come up with some getaway drivers but oceans 11 as an example of like the righteous robber well that movie was a little too obvious for a getaway driver (laughs) i saw it and i was like well maybe that makes too much sense but you're right the gentleman criminal who's stealing from people that have more money than they should and helping the people that don't have enough yeah but all of that makes this really controversial because this is coming right at the end of the age of the production code, a thing that we've talked about a lot on this show. The pre-rating system of determining whether or not a movie was acceptable for audiences. So with this, I feel like we've now talked about one of the last movies made before the code and one of the first movies that was signaling the end with The Thin Man. That was one of the last films, while that wasn't the depravity of some of the pre-code films. It was definitely a pre-code film. And this is very much the feeling of a post-code film. And it is really one of the heralds of that new Hollywood movement that you see in the 70s with Coppola and Scorsese and Brian De Palma and all of them, Paul Schrader. And that's kind of why you see this this controversy surrounding it, surrounding its violence, surrounding its, at times, joyousness. The code said that criminals should not be shown in a positive light. And here you have Bonnie and Clyde, who are very much humanized. Their actions, not so much, but them as people, yes. They do follow the code in that the criminals do not get away with it. That is true. (laughs) They very much do not get away with it. Yeah, and I mean, that was part of what was so shocking about the movie, was the bloodiness of their deaths. Yeah, that final scene, and the fact that it is just the final scene. The movie just ends with their bullet-riddled corpses hanging out of a car and on the ground next to it. It's shocking. It is. It's very shocking imagery, and very well cut. That whole scene is just really precise, and it works so well. And that jarring editing was a big part of what they were taking from the French New Wave of the early 60s. The super fast cuts between the eyes of Bonnie and Clyde right before they get shot is such a striking image. So like we said, the movie was controversial, but it was still quite well received within the film industry. It was nominated for, I believe, 10 Oscars for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay. Lead actor for Warren Beatty, lead actress for Faye Dunaway, two supporting actor nominations for both Gene Hackman and Michael Pollard, and a nomination for costume design. It won Best Supporting Actress for Estelle Parsons, and it won the Academy Award for Cinematography. What won Best Picture that year? We have actually talked about this Oscar year twice before. Oh, yes. Because this is the year that, in the heat of the night, won Best Picture up against Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and the Rex Harrison Dr. Doolittle. Honestly, we should just finish off this list. The only thing I've seen from the Rex Harrison Dr. Doolittle is a video that taught me truly what yeet means, because 
there's a scene where he's singing to a seal who's dressed in Edwardian women's clothing, and then he yeets her fully off a cliff. He just chucks the seal off of a giant cliff, and I'm torn between wanting the context and wanting it to just live as this moment. No, we can uh, we can put it on the on the schedule. We're working on our next one right now. <laughs> And then In the Heat of the Night is a movie that beat all these others. It's a Sidney Poitier vehicle. Okay, and I would kind of, I would like to see what the hubbub is all about. All right, yeah, I've actually been looking to work through all of them myself because I bought a copy of Mark Harris's book, Pictures at a Revolution, which uses this year's Oscars to talk about the way Hollywood was changing in the late 60s looking towards the 70s. Is that a good book? Should I read it? It is very widely regarded. I have not read it because I want to watch all five movies first. Oh, okay. Well, we can help you on that journey. All right. I'm adding Dr. Doolittle to the schedule right now. Okay. And I, of course, will be able to talk about it in comparison to the 2020 Dr. Doolittle. Excuse me. It's just Doolittle. I mean, here's the deal. If these movie theaters don't open soon, it's going to be in my top 10 for the year because I just haven't seen that many 2020 movies. Oh, God. I'll just put Portrait of a Lady on Fire on my list because I saw it this year and it'll occupy the top four positions. It's on Hulu now in the States. Oh, it's... PSA, people. PSA. Check out Portrait of a Lady on Fire. It's so good. I forget where it fell. It was definitely in my top five last year. Should we break down the romance of this film? Yeah, let's talk about these hot people. So, every week we do break down the romantic plotline of a movie into five points because we're extremely focused on answering the questions we lay out at the beginning and never go off. It is the most important question. It's the most important question, so we only focus on that and never discuss anything else. Nothing unimportant. So, the romance of Bonnie and Clyde is the central idea of this film, I would say. So let's get to it. I would say the central idea is how good that cheeseburger she eats looks because it looks good. No, the cheeseburger looks good because she's eating it. You're not wrong. (laughs) I would say it is a normal looking cheeseburger, but because Faye Dunaway is holding it, it all of a sudden is a perfect looking cheeseburger. If anyone wants to mail me cheeseburgers during this trying time, I would encourage it. If anyone wants to mail me pictures of Faye Dunaway in this trying time, I would also be okay with that, too. You can tweet us pictures of Faye Dunaway to our Twitter account at LoveTheLovePod. And because we want to observe good practices, your Faye Dunaway pictures should be hashtag, hashtag, you got Faye, this, buddy. Six feet of Faye. Mm, I think stay fix, I think stay six feet of Faye is fun because it's impossible to stay. Impossible okay. to say. I'm dying hashtag stay six feet of fey perfect excellent (laughs) you got there in the end all right so point number one so point number one is the beginning of this movie it's the first meeting between bonnie parker and clyde barrow what's it like aren't you in prison no armed robbery it ain't like anything so we start off, Bonnie just having woken up, and the movie kind of starts off right away being like, we're not going easy on you, this movie's going to be all in, by which I mean Bonnie's naked. Yes, the movie opens with her putting on lipstick while naked, and not really getting dressed, so she's just kind of putting on lipstick for herself. Yeah. And then she looks outside the window, a window that is just so conveniently placed to have the bar that goes across it right at Faye Dunaway boob height. So yeah, 
<laughs> you don't check that when you move into a place? <laughs> yeah, I always make sure that all the, what is that word? The bars on windows are right at nipple height to protect my modesty. It's one of those standard measurements. Exactly. So she sees that Clyde is outside the house and is like poking around the car, leaning his head in the window, clearly up to no good. And she says, boy, what are you trying to do with my mama's car or something? But is very flirty about it, even though she knows that he is clearly trying to steal it. He's a cutie. He is, again. This movie hinges on the fact that they're hot in many ways. And he's insisting like, no, I'm not trying to steal it. I'm just thinking about buying one. So I wanted to get a look at it. And she's like, you are full of crap, my friend. Yeah. So she tells him to stay there, quickly puts on a dress and runs downstairs. She's like still buttoning it when she walks outside. Oh, yes. And he says, I can't afford a car, but I can afford a Coke. Want to come into town with me? And so they kind of go on a date. And she's like, no, I have to go to work. And he's like, no, you don't. Yeah. So they walk into town together. They drink a Coke on the street. That's how you know that this movie is not set in the yesterday cinematic universe because they have access to Coca-Cola. Right. And also a lot of cigarettes. Oh, right. And also they're reading Harry Potter in most of the scenes. (laughs) God damn it. That movie. Anyway. Weird movie. (laughs) He tells her that he is just out of jail for armed robbery. And instead of saying, oh, no, she says, prove it. And she gets him to go rob a grocery store right in front of her. Well, before that, there's the question where she says, what's it like? And he goes, oh, prison? And she says, no, armed robbery. She's immediately fascinated by him, by his lifestyle. By this point, he's already told her that he chopped off his own toes. He shot him off, which raises the question of how did he get a gun in jail? I think he chopped him off. Did he say chop? I thought he said shot. Yeah. I may have chopped him off with an axe. Yeah. And this is a part that mirrors real life where in prison, Clyde Barrow got somebody else to chop off two of his toes so he could get off work detail and didn't know that his mother had successfully appealed for parole and he was let out of prison six days later. So I think it's very telling about this movie where you have to jump in and say where it is mirroring real life in a movie that is ostensibly based on a true story. It's nothing like reality for the most part. Something that comes up a lot in the Pauline Kael review, actually, where she's clearly arguing with other critics. And basically her argument is that people are only scared of Bonnie and Clyde, like shocked by it because it's a good movie. And when you see shocking things in bad movies, you're just like, oh, whatever. Who cares? And one of the things she's saying is, here we've got Bonnie and Clyde. It's kind of shocking. It's violent. It's sexy. And sure, it doesn't stick to reality. But nobody's complaining about the historical inaccuracy of A Man for All Seasons because it's not shocking in other ways. But now everyone cares about historical accuracy. Right. It's one of those things where if someone's just offended about one thing about a movie, in this case, the violence, they kind of then tear it apart in every other regard. Right. But anyway, as... Anyway, they rob a bank. Yeah, as I said, we stay on task the whole time. They rob a bank. And this is also one of the funniest scenes in a movie, I think. Oh, right, because this is the one that's already closed, right? Yeah, so he goes into a bank, and he's like, give me all the money. And the guy behind the counter just laughs and is like, they already closed this bank. There is no money here. It's a depression. Banks don't have money. Oh, I actually have a horrifying depression-related thing for this movie, which is that Faye Dunaway, her screen debut was earlier this year in a movie called The Happening, which is not directed by M. Night Shyamalan. Instead, it's about hippies who kidnap a retired mafia boss and hold him for ransom. That sounds like a movie from 1967. Yeah. Anyway, she was asked to lose weight for the role 
to get a more Depression-era look. So she went on a starvation diet and lost 30 pounds in a few weeks. Oh, God. Yeah. Ugh, Hollywood sucks. Yeah. Anyway, it's the Depression. The banks have no money. Yeah, so the teller tells Clyde this, and he takes him outside and is like, you tell it to her in a way to be like, Basically trying to prove that he didn't wimp out of trying to rob the bank. And what he tells Bonnie, she just cackles with glee about the whole situation. Yeah, she thinks it's hilarious. So they rob a bank. Then they drive off. And as they're driving off, she is all over him. She's so excited by this. It is some dangerous driving. Right. And to be clear, like, he is trying to drive... She is, like, trying to climb on top of him. By the time he pulls the car off the road and stops, she is literally in his lap. And he pushes her off and gets out of the car. Yeah, and he says, he tells her in this scene, I ain't much of a lover boy. And he says, I never saw much of a percentage in it. Like, there's no point to it. Like, what do I get out of being in love with somebody? Very adamantly heterosexual. Right, although not in the original draft of the screenplay. Hmm. In the original version... Clyde was explicitly bisexual, and there is kind of a thruple thing with Bonnie, Clyde, and Moss, but that part was cut, and there's not, like, one definite reason why. There's It's probably a combination of all of these, that there was a desire to focus more exclusively on the romance between Bonnie and Clyde, that Warren Beatty didn't want to make out with a dude, and that they were concerned about the degree to which they were already pushing the production code. They didn't want to add something on top of that. Right. And it's also at the time, if you're trying to make a movie to humanize Bonnie and Clyde, making them sexual deviants would not really help. Right. So he tells her that it's more just the fact that he's impotent and her reaction is, your advertising is just dandy. Folks never guess you don't have a thing to sell. That's it. I don't, I I do think that his impotence we see in the movie is psychological. And yes. I think his line about I never saw much of a percentage in it is meaningful because his block does seem to be like, what's the point of any of this? And that when he is finally able to have sex with Bonnie, it's because he has seen value in that kind of relationship. Right. So he still convinces her to run away with him. He calls her maybe the best damn girl in Texas. Which is a great, I mean, the way he delivers that is just so fantastic. She's put out by the fact that he can't have sex, but she is still convinced to come along. She's dazzled by this lifestyle of adventure. And also his dazzling blue eyes, I would imagine. He's a sexy man. They almost shot this movie in black and white. That would have been a shame. Yeah. Beatty wanted to do it that way because he thought it would draw people to the time period more directly but warner brothers was like no we already don't like this project we're not going to put it in a format that sells less well and i mean i think one of the reasons the movie is so good is because it is so 60s it's not trying too hard to fully you know capture the spirit of the era in which it's set bonnie's dresses are very much not fully depression era they are incredibly inspired by the moment in which the film was made and i think it adds to the film rather than detracts from it i'd agree anyway uh at this diner where she gets called the best damn girl in texas bonnie eats an amazing looking cheeseburger and with that they are fully on board and they are in love also he immediately tells her to change her hair and is establishing a power dynamic in the moment as well i forgot about that just saw that in my notes now we're on to point number two They're on the run. They're in love. They kill people. Not yet. Would you know what kind of car this is? This is a four-cylinder Ford Coupe? No. Sure sure is. 
This is a stolen four-cylinder Ford Coupe. So they need to get their oil changed or something, and they stop in. Bonnie basically convinces Moss to come along with them. Moss looks like the short elf from the year without a Santa Claus. He's an like interesting a tall, skinny guy. Elf, and then there's the short elf with the curly hair. He looks like that one. He's a very interesting guy, this Moss character. Yeah. They're asking him, like, hey, you know, this is a stolen car. You want to come with us and be our mechanic? And he's like, yeah, I'm all in. And they're like, we don't believe you're a real criminal. And he's like, oh, I'm definitely a criminal. And they're like, no, 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 like, shorting people on change doesn't make you a criminal. Prove you're a criminal. So he goes into the store, does some business, walks out, and then super casually just holds out his hand, drops a bunch of money into the car, having taken it from the cash register, and they're off to the races. Right. And so they do another robbery. Yes. Well, no, they, they do some robberies because we see that they are on the run. And when they do so, Bonnie and Clyde share a bed and Moss, who snores quite heavily, sleeps in a chair. Right. So Bonnie and Clyde do some crimes. And then in their first major bank robbery, they successfully get the money. But uh, Moss, Moss got a parking spot, got a parking spot and can't unparalleled park. A truly incredible comic moment. And this is probably the kind of thing that Bosley Crowther was like, how is this in the same movie with such shocking violence that you see in the second half? But that's kind of the key, is we, like Bonnie, need to fall in love with the crime so that we can be horrified by its results. So eventually they get out of this space and are driving away. After ramming the cars in front and behind repeatedly. My God. So someone from the bank jumps onto the side of the car And this is the first time they kill people where Clyde shoots the man in the face who's hanging on the car dead. It's kind of horrifying because he shoots him through the car window. And so you just hear the gunshot and then you see the glass shatter and the blood on the other side smear between his face and the window. Right. And so that's the night where things really get real for the first time. Right. Clyde tells Bonnie she needs to go home, that the press knows who he is, but won't know who Bonnie is, so she can leave, and she'll be okay. And he says, like, if you stay with me, they'll find out who you are, you won't get a minute's peace. And she goes, you promise? And then they smooch. They kiss a bunch, and Bonnie, who is a real horn dog, not stated as a judgment, just a fact, is trying to have sex with him, and is disappointed to discover that he was telling the truth. He is impotent, he can't get it up. Yeah, but she still stays. Yes. And so, point three. So, after this, Clyde's brother, Buck, played by Gene Hackman, is released He's from... good in this movie! He is very good in this movie. He's released from jail, so he and his new wife, Blanche, or I guess not new, but they haven't met, Clyde and Blanche haven't met yet, come and join the gang. So now we've got the whole Barrow gang together. Good afternoon, this is the Barrow gang. Now, if everybody will just take it easy, nobody will get hurt. And they're chatting. They're catching up with one another. They're taking pictures. This is when Clyde is telling Buck about being a toe cutter. Right. And Buck asks, you know, is she as good as she looks? And Clyde responds, even better. Because obviously he is not telling his brother that he is impotent. Right. There is this performative aspect of Clyde that is almost never turned off. Yeah, he is always acting. Which is, like, kind of fun. There is a Han Solo aspect to the character where you get that sense that half the time he's bluffing, but it's not always clear that even he knows when he is because he's so used to it. He's so fallen into this role. 
Right. So they are now, as a crew, for the most part, they're having a good time. Unfortunately, Blanche is very annoying, and Bonnie immediately hates her. Blanche is a preacher's daughter who did not really intend to become part of a life of crime. She loves Buck a lot. Right. And thought that after Buck got out of jail, he would not do crime anymore, but she's dragged into this life that she does not want. So they start going on the run, crossing state lines. They go to Missouri, they go to Oklahoma, and like you said, Bonnie is increasingly annoyed by Blanche. She wants to be alone with Clyde. Clyde's like, I feel like we're always alone. Bonnie's like, really? And he's like, yeah, let's go get dinner with everyone else. Right, so Bonnie is clearly trying to get more intimate with Clyde, who is pulling away, likely as a result of his views of relationships and also his hangups about sex. And it's definitely starting to wear on Bonnie, as well as the realities of the crimes they are taking place of setting in. Right. It's during this window when they are together with the Barrow Gang that there is an increasing manhunt for them, and they encounter Frank Hamer, the Texas Ranger, who has crossed state lines trying to track them down. They ambush him, capture him, and take a bunch of pictures with him to make it look like he is part of the Barrow Gang to try to humiliate him. And then shove him out onto the lake. Yeah. In a boat. That's a scene where you're like, holy crap, like, this is dangerous. Right. So then, as this is happening, there's a couple run-ins with the law, and things just keep getting more and more chaotic. Bonnie is getting increasingly frustrated. There's a point when she demands that they get rid of Blanche, and starts telling Clyde that he's just like Buck, except for his peculiar ideas about lovemaking, which is no lovemaking at all! Oof. And eventually, it gets to the point where Bonnie wants to see her mom and this brings us to point four yeah they go into like the dust fields of depression era texas and bonnie's family meets up with them and they have like a picnic is the wrong word but a bunch of people essentially a family reunion yeah had a reunion kind of in the middle of nowhere everyone seems happy to see bonnie except for her mother right clyde tries to sell bonnie's mom this whole song about how like yeah you know we're only doing this as long as we have to i was just talking to bonnie about how we want to settle down we want to be no more than three miles away from where you live so we can always be nearby and bonnie's mom is like you better not do that or you'll be in prison right bonnie's mom does not really want to see bonnie anymore right she tells them they'd better just keep running right and so later after this bonnie is despondent and she's says her mom's old, so she'll probably never see her again, and she- And she also says, like, my mom isn't my mom anymore, she's just an old woman. Right, and so now she doesn't have any family left, and this is a moment of actual warmth where Clyde responds, you know, I'm your family, to show- remind us they, you know, there still is some love between these two people. Right, but Bonnie is increasingly despondent, not just because of her lost relationship with her mother, but the sense that by now- They are really on the run. They haven't pulled a big job in a long time. Feels like they're kind of on their last legs. She says, when we started out, I thought we were going somewhere. Now it feels like they're just hanging on by the skin of their teeth. Which is fair. So things are not looking too hot for Bonnie and Clyde. The adventure is losing its luster. Right. So I think this brings us to point five. Someday they'll go down together. They'll bury them side by side. To few it'll be grief. To the law a relief. But it's death for Bonnie and Clyde. You know what you done there? You told my story. You told my whole story right there, right there. One time I told you I was gonna make you somebody, that's what you done for me. 
You made me somebody they gonna remember. Some shit goes down. Buck is killed. In a, a, a horrifying, bloody sequence. Oh, yes. Horrifying. Multiple shootouts with cops and other people. Blanche is then captured. Bonnie and Clyde and Moss escape. Bonnie and Clyde are both shot. And then they go back to Moss's father's house to get reprieve. And while they're there, Moss's they kind father of... is Moss's father is not happy that his son has been running around with these criminals. He's honestly more annoyed that his son got a large chest tattoo. <laughs> it's a bad tattoo. It is a terrible tattoo. But he is glad that at least Moss's name has never been identified in the press. That is until Blanche comes clean, confesses to the cops, and gives them Moss's name, which gives them a lead to track down Moss's dad. And a basically a death trap is set up for Bonnie and Clyde. Before that, though, Bonnie and Clyde are thinking about the future. They're thinking about their ends. Bonnie writes a poem about their lives versus the perception of their lives by the law and by the press. The real life Bonnie Parker did write that poem. In the movie, she sends it to the newspapers to be published. In real life, her mother was the one who had it published after Bonnie's death. Right. And she reads Clyde the poem, and he's like, wow, you have put it into words. Like, you have made me somebody they're going to remember once the poem is published. Right. And then he's able to have sex. Yes. They have sex for the first time. Which I don't love. No. It kind of is almost like too happy. Right. Which is the point. There's an extent to which they are, again, finding their way to an equilibrium where they could live, but they aren't allowed to have it. But I right. don't think we need this other thing on top of it. No, and Clyde proposes. Which we actually find out when we see them in bed back at the Moss house, and she's saying, why do you want to marry me? Right. And so they're finally, in a way, it's almost like they're making moves towards what Bonnie wants. Except that it's in that sequence in bed where she's saying, if you could walk out of here tomorrow, not wanted by the law, what would you do? And he starts planning that new world of crime. Right. So Bonnie's definitely kind of building up some hope that is shot down in this moment. Clyde is not going to give up on this until he is killed. Which, spoiler alert, happens very shortly after. Pretty much the next day, I think. Yeah, the next day they go into town and Moss's father tells him not to get in the car with them, basically to stay in town because, and Moss knows this, Moss's dad has set up a thing with the cops where he is pulled over on the side of the road changing a tire when bonnie and clyde come and in this moment the cops show up and they are just fully gunned down and this is what we were talking about that truly savage ending to this movie right and if you look at the car like bonnie and clyde's car that they were killed in it's also what it seems to have happened in real life too the amount of bullet holes in the car it's insane and that's the end of the film yeah great movie great movie so watching everything unfold what do you think will do you find the romance of body and clyde believable i would say yeah i mean setting aside the based on a true story thing i think that the way bonnie is taken into this world and captivated by both clyde as an individual but also kind of the sexiness of the lifestyle makes sense and i think it also makes sense that she would over time maybe start to reject aspects of that Yes, I think the movie does a really good job with the believability of the romance between the two of them. So on a 10-point scale where 0 means you believe none of it and 10 means you believe all of it, where would you rank Bonnie and Clyde? Hmm. 
I think maybe as a nine. I'm doing ten. You're doing a ten. I mean, part of it is just that I think Bonnie's emotional journey so effectively mirrors the audience's that it's hard for me to take myself out of it. But yeah, I think that it works really effectively to show the different forces that are pushing them together and pulling them apart. Yeah, I I would go up to a 10. I agree. Woohoo! All right. So, do you, do you find Bonnie or Clyde dateable? Number one, criminals. Number two, murderers. Number three, very attractive. I mean, this is the thing. <laughs> you know, physically, How strong yes. is our anti-murder stance? So, dateable, no. One night, maybe. <laughs> I mean, Clyde might disappoint you there. Yeah, I know. That, uh, I forgot about that part. Uh, but, I mean, Bonnie, on the other hand, doesn't seem like she would be a disappointment. She's ready to go. But, you know, no. Too much murder. Right. We are strictly anti-murder. We got to stand by it. Now, had they lived, do you think Bonnie and Clyde would have stayed together? It's hard to answer because Bonnie and Clyde die. It's what they do. It's hard to imagine a world where those two live much longer. Right. So I don't see a world where they don't end up dead in this way. And I think that they stay together until that happens. I kind of agree. If you did have to pick one person in this movie to date which is going to be hard because of our anti-murder stance, who would it be? Oh, I have my answer. It's oh, the, I it's, have the one te- it's the teller in the first bank who oh. just fully laughs when a gun is pointed in his face because there's no money in the bank. That guy's kind of great. I love his attitude. He's kind of just like, the world sucks and I'm living in it. And all you can do is laugh. My answer is Velma, who is Good choice. Gene Wilder's girlfriend. Uh, Gene Wilder plays Eugene, who you know is a bad person, because he orders his hamburgers well done. Ugh, so gross. Right, the only other person who does that is Donald Trump. That's not an insult, that's a fact. You can look it up. Donald Trump orders his steaks well done. So, Velma... Anyway, Velma's great. Is great. She apparently has lied about her age to Eugene. Which is incredible. So they're in the car, and they, like the audience, like Bonnie, get caught up in the exciting nature of this life of crime, being with the Barrow Gang. And people in the gang are trying to find out more about Velma and Eugene, and they just toss off, how old are you? And Velma says, 33. And then both she and Eugene, their faces just fall. The look they share. It's so good. It's amazing. And I love that moment. That's when I wrote down in my notes, Velma equals date. Uh, Because I like her confidence in herself to pull off that lie. And just that, that willingness to try something fun, even if it is going along with a bunch of criminals. So, Will, a lot of movies we cover have been made into musicals. Do you want to see a stage musical production of, let's specifically say, Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde? I think I do. I think I do, too. I think this story of two people who are young and in love and kill people would be a lot of fun to add songs to. And you can keep that bluegrassy kind of soundtrack that it uses in the movie. And you could also be very 60s inspired at the same time. I mean, here's the thing. This screenplay is written by people who wrote a musical. So, come back to life and get on it. It's a plain dot dot dot. It's Superman. They might be alive. I'm not sure. But anyway, get on it. I... All right. All right. I think that's about it for Bonnie and Clyde. Next week, we are going to be doing... A movie that is often considered among the best of all time. The 1952 MGM musical, Singing in the Rain. I don't really have much more to add. This movie's amazing. It rules!
Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Reviews on Apple Podcasts in particular help other people to find the show. Last question. This is going to be difficult because of our anti-crime stance. What's the best piece of dating advice you got from Bonnie and Clyde? You want my answer? Yes. Buy a girl a cheeseburger. Your advice for most movies we've covered. I w- it was definitely my advice for The Fly. Yeah, it has come up more than once, I think. That was in the mix. I was also going to say, buy a girl a Coke. Yeah, that because works that's what too. he does first. Ugh, I want a Coke right now. Here's another piece of advice. If you really want to make out with somebody, go for it. And if they care about their and your life, they'll make sure they don't let you do it while they're driving. <laughs> well, there you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. 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 The poems that she wrote of the life that they led Told of the long men left dying or dead some say that Clyde made her life a shame, but the legend made Bonnie the head of the game. The rampage grew wilder with each passing day, the odds growing smaller with each getaway. With the end.